If you have your Bible, turn with me to the table of contents, okay? Let's all do it together, just this week, okay? Just this week, no one has to be the person still flipping pages on your row, okay? If you look down near the Old Testament list, you'll find the book of Haggai. Mark the page number, and then you can turn with me to Haggai chapter 1, where we will be reading from verse 1 through 11 in just a few minutes. And as you find that this morning, think with me for a moment. Do you have those passages of Scripture that you just can't read without being at least a little bit convicted? Do you have those passages of Scripture that because of the high calling that they call us to, you just can't read and think, yeah, I got that, I got that taken care of? Without doing some sense of soul-searching, some sense of, Lord, please sanctify me even more. I'll give you a few examples. Isaiah 6. I'm never going to read, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and then going on, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, without in some way feeling undone, as Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Going on, it tells us to have the humility of Christ who left heaven, came to earth, and faced the cross. I'm never going to read Philippians 2 and think, check, I have incarnation-level humility. Rather, every time, every time I read Philippians 2, I'm going to be invited to confess the pride that's remaining in me and commit anew to walk in the way that Jesus walked. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm never going to read that and think, done, I'm killing it. And if I did... I think I'd get a reminder pretty quickly in my house. <laughs> Rather, every time calls for spirit-led reflection and a renewed commitment for my marriage to be a picture of the gospel. I could go on. Luke 14, 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's just passages that are always going to be convicting in some way. There's just passages that if we honor the word of God, we can't read them and just walk away without some level of reflection. Haggai chapter 1 is one of those passages for me. As it asks the question, do you care more about building your own house than you care about building God's kingdom? Are you so consumed with your day-to-day that you neglect the presence of God and the mission of God? But for us to get there this morning, we have to situate this little book 
in the broader story of the Bible so that we can understand its part in the grand story of redemption and in how it applies to where we sit today. Said differently, I love the minor prophets, but I know many of us struggle to Many of us struggle to understand these short little books at the end of the Old Testament. And the book of Haggai, as we'll see in the opening verse, hinges on reading the prophet's words together with the corresponding narrative, keeping in view the context of what's going on. So as a setup, not just for this week, but the entire four-week sermon series, let me offer part of a big-picture view to help us situate this in its proper context. And hang with me as we plowed the ground this morning, which will uh, make less work for us later. This is a little bit longer before we get to the reading of the text, but I think it will uh, pay off in, in the end. Uh, think back with me at the big picture story of the Bible. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2, right? God created the world and it was good. He created man and woman in his image. He tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with little images, little worshipers. And as we read through and he gets to the end of his creation, he looks back, saw everything that he had made, and he said, behold, it was very good. He says, very good. But the fall, Genesis chapter 3, man fell into sin and sin enters the world ransacking the good and perfect order of his creation, and then chaos ensues. But immediately we see redemption uh, promised in Genesis 3.15. God sets into motion a plan to redeem the world. First through Abraham, he's going to set apart a people for himself. Later he's going to give them the promised land. He's going to give that people a special relationship with him through his covenant. And he promises Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then the rest of Genesis shows us God fulfilling that promise to make them a people. Fast forward the book of Exodus. God rescues out of Egypt through Moses. The nation receives the law. They wander in the wilderness and then standing on the edge of the promised land, having been rescued out of Egypt and about to enter the promised land, they hear the covenant again, the terms of their special relationship with God. They hear it as Moses delivers to them with his dying words exactly how God will deal with them as a nation. And stay with me here in Deuteronomy 28 because this is coming back later. As I skip through a few passages in Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28, 1, he says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord, will God, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Down to verse 7, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. 
And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them, and if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. So blessings come on the nation of Israel if they will obey the covenant. But the same chapter, verse 15 But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. So with this charge resting on them, They go in, and God delivers the promised land to them by the hand of Joshua. And as they live in the promised land, they have times of greater faithfulness, but mostly we see Israel neglecting the covenant and running after other false gods, doing what is right in their own eyes. And God, who is slow to anger and long-suffering, sends on the people partial curses, and at times they return to him, but then ultimately they turn away in such a way that eventually God keeps the full weight, keeps the promise of the full weight of the curses in Deuteronomy 28. By the time we get into 2 Kings, sin had divided the people of God into two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north, and then you have Judah in the south. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom falls, as 2 Kings 17 records, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Thanks to some leaders who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the southern kingdom of Judah, including Jerusalem, it holds on for a little while before ultimately their unfaithfulness nets them the same curse of exile. Jeremiah is sent to tell Judah, because you have not listened to the warnings from the Lord and turned back, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And that's what we see in 586 B.C., which is 2 Kings 24, at the hands of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible says this, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. God's people, banished from their land, their temple demolished, and their people carried away in exile under an evil nation, all because of their failure to honor the Lord according to the covenant. And yet, Jeremiah promises also a future restoration of Israel 
in a verse you've heard quoted a few times, Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah 29, 10 through 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. You see, Ezra chapter 1 as we start circling closer to our text this morning, even before the 70 years are up, in 538 BC, the Bible says that he, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, who says to Israel basically this, go back home, build your temple, rebuild your temple, I'll pay for it, take whatever you need, I'll pay for it, Go home, here's everything we took from you, go home and rebuild your temple. And so we see many of the Israelites go and they start to do just as they had been told through God's providential hand, moving on the hand of a pagan king. And that goes on for just a little while before they face fierce opposition from their neighbors, which ultimately lands them here in Ezra 4.23. They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And that right there is exactly the point at which our text today occurs. Haggai 1, 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the uh, clear relevance of your word to our lives God, I pray that you would help us to understand your word now. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak through me, allowing me to clearly explain your word. 
And then, God, I pray that your spirit would search our hearts, comforting us where we need to be comforted, convicting us where we need to be convicted. Lord, that we might honor and serve you more and that you might get more glory from our individual lives and also our corporate life as a church body. Lord, I pray that you would do that work this morning to glorify yourself. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me to the introduction of verse 1 before we look at a structure from verses 2 through 11. First, we see that this occurred in the second year of Darius the king. This places it about 520 B.C., which tells us that we are some 66 years into the exile that Jeremiah said would take 70 years. But more importantly, more importantly, we're almost 20 years in from the time that the first Israelites returned back to Jerusalem with the charge to rebuild the temple. Second, Haggai tells us not just the year, but the month and the day of each of his messages from the Lord. So all of the messages from the Lord delivered to Haggai can be dated, give or take, one day. This pair this morning uh, occurs give or take one day, August 29th of 520 B.C. And the whole book of Haggai occurs over just a few months at the end of 520 B.C. So here in chapter 1, August 29th, during the harvest time for fruits. That's what we learned by his specific dating. This is right there during the harvest time for fruits. Harvest for other crops has already occurred and they're now harvesting their fruits, which is sort of the end of their fiscal year and a good time to take stock of how the harvest has gone for them this year. But more than that, it's on the first day of the month, which is a time that the law tells us they should be bringing their feasts and they should be bringing their offerings to the temple for a festival celebration. And this is when Haggai speaks his first two words from the Lord this morning. The first we see is directed at the leaders, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That's important. How do we know it's important? Because he repeats it again, almost verbatim, in verse 12, and then again in chapter 2, verse 2. Why is it important? Because Zerubbabel is from the line of David, and the kings, and Judah, because Joshua is from the line of Levi, the priest. That's important. Now, as if we continue on to verse 2 through 11, it will be helpful to point out the chiastic structure of the text. As you might recall from Pastor Ken's sermon on Psalm 67 a few weeks ago, a chiasm is a literary device used often in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where the message is organized in steps that ascend and then descend in corresponding ways so that the first corresponds to the last and so on. And this is important because, A, you get to just enjoy the beauty and artistry of God's word, and B, because the form helps us see the meaning, especially because the chiasm often places the most important points of the text right there at the middle, right there on the apex. 
the entire book of Haggai actually takes the form of a chiasm, and then our text today is a chiasm within a chiasm. So um, it looks something like what is on the screen, uh, taken from Alec Matir and slightly adapted. First, in verse 2, we see the divine word exposing failure. Then in verses 3 through 4, we see the indictment of their false priorities. 5 and 6, we see consider your ways, take stock. And then in 7 and 8, we see consider your ways, turn to what you should do. And then as we descend back down, we see the false priorities, the consequences. And then finally, we see the divine action disciplining failure. So, With that in mind, let's walk through verses 2 through 11 more closely before ultimately stepping back to see two main takeaways for us. The first message here is directed at the leaders about the people. Verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is the preferred title for God in the book of Haggai. He uses it four times in our passage today. He uses it at least 13 times total in the book as a whole. It's a name meant to invoke the power of God, the might of God. He can command an army of angels in a moment. That's who he is, and he is not to be trifled with. That's what the name is meant to invoke. Going on, he says, these people, we know what it's like when you get this kind of disassociating language, right? When one parent says, these kids, you know it's probably not going to go well. Or if they say, do you know what your son did today? Well, if he's just mine right now, then it probably wasn't, wasn't good. The same thing is going on here as God uses this phrase, these people, instead of the more covenantal, my people. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The Lord here is quoting the prevailing sentiment of the day. This is what the people are saying. Now's not the time. We'll get to that, just not now. We got to do blank first. Once we achieve, then we can focus on that. We just don't have time for that yet. Yeah, yeah, it's important, but not yet. And so he sets it up as a disputation and then response. This is what the people say, and now the Lord Almighty is going to weigh in on what he thinks about that. Turning from a message to the leaders and now directly addressing the people, here is the Lord Almighty's answer. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Invoking this messenger formula again as a reminder that this is the word of the Lord. And the prophet is just the vessel. God asks the piercing question which lays bare their priorities. Hmm. No time? No wood? Interesting, because you had time to rebuild your house while mine lies in ruins. 
Remember, it's been almost 20 years. How long did it take Solomon to build it the first time? Seven years. You could say, but they're small in number. It's still in ruins. They're not even trying. You could say that they didn't have their resources, but go back to Ezra chapter 1 and read the blank check that Cyrus, king of the empire, wrote them. Or you could say, but they were opposed. This is the temple of the Lord of hosts, the Almighty One. No outside opposition has ever stood in his way when he wanted something done. And, spoiler, when they do get back at it, there's still opposition that he deals with swiftly by his providence. Same as when they move on to rebuilding the walls in the book of Nehemiah. Opposition is no excuse for ceasing. How often are the purposes of God opposed in this world? Opposition is no excuse for unfaithfulness. Opposition is promised in a world opposed to him. But when he wants it done, he provides a way. God's indictment on their false priority, trying to pretend like it's important to them, while their lack of action shows that it's not important to them at all. And remember, we're not talking about a church building, okay? The temple for them is not the same as a church building for us. If you hear like a pastor comparing the building to a temple, there's probably a capital campaign going on, and uh, it's probably time to just head on down the road. The temple is the place where the presence of God dwells and where sacrifice for sin is to be made. So the indictment, is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins, pierces more directly than just, hey, where's my house? The undertone of the question from God is, do you even care about me at all? Do you care about my presence? Where will I dwell if there's no temple? Do you care about sacrifice for sin? Is it enough for you to have your houses, your land, your crops, if you don't have me? Or am I just the afterthought that you can throw a little bit of time towards after you've gotten all that you actually want from life? After God graciously preserved a remnant through the exile, and after the Lord moved mightily through the pagan king Cyrus to provide all that they need, the people of God ought to have come back in Jerusalem rejoicing, ready to get to work, ready to sleep on the ground, sleep in a tent, sleep under a tree, do whatever it took until the temple of God was rebuilt. And after the temple of God was rebuilt, then they could go to work on rebuilding their houses. Then they could turn attention to that. His presence should have been his people's priority. His mission should have been their marching orders. 
Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. The book of Haggai has five different calls to consider. Two today in this passage and three more in chapter two. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Where has this gotten you? What do you have to show for this? You're still receiving the curses of the covenant. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 28? Blessings for covenant obedience, curses for covenant breaking. The language of verse 6 shows us they are still receiving discipline from the Lord for their continued waywardness, but we also see grace. Grace because the discipline isn't full. This isn't full-blown famine. They still have something of a harvest. They still have something to eat, something to drink, just not enough. And grace, because the discipline of the Lord is there to call them back to him. This is the apex of the chiastic structure. This is right there on the turn. And this is the way, the Bible's way of telling us this is what's most important here in this word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Reflect. Do some soul searching. Consider your ways. And as we descend down the stairs of the chiasm with corresponding points, verse 7 through 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It says, here's what repentance will look like. Get to work on the thing that you should have been doing. Go, bring the wood, build the house. Why? Not primarily so they could be out from under the covenant curses. Primarily so God may be pleased and his glory will be shown off. So that it will be clear that his people care about his presence, and so it'll be clear that his mission is their marching orders, so that he can take pleasure in the rightly given offerings for sin, and so that he can again dwell in their midst. The changing of their mind, the considering of their priorities is going to show itself in their action, or they can stay under the covenant curses. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. The people of God returning to the promised land had reason to expect great blessing from God because Jeremiah and Amos had both promised to the remnant that they would return with great blessing after the exile. And yet they don't receive it because they have not been faithful. He's actively 
actively made sure that they would not, saying, I blew it away. Again, repeating the indictment on the way down the steps in a verse that is a big part of the reason I say this passage gets me every time. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. As we come full circle, the Lord says again that they are under the curses of the covenant, and he does so in a biting wordplay that's missed in English as he uses similar Hebrew words as if to say, because my house is a desolation, I have called for a desolation on the land. So, what do we do with this text? First, having situated the text in redemptive history, in the full story of the Bible, we then consider where we sit in redemptive history. Like I said before, the church building isn't the temple. We used to meet in a quadruple-wide trailer, right? Right next door. I've gathered for church on the astroturf of a gym, in a movie theater, in a wallace structure in Peru, under a tin roof in Ghana, and yes, even in a few buildings, but none of them were temples. The temple for the Israelite was the place where the presence of God dwelled and the place where sacrifice for sin was made. But then Jesus came. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So during his time on earth, Jesus was the place where the presence of God dwelled, and he was the one who would make sacrifice for sin once and for all. And that's not just word associations. That's who Jesus claimed to be. Speaking of himself in John chapter 2, verse 19, do you remember what he said? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. In Eden, the whole world was the temple as the presence of God dwelled, and no sacrifice for sin was needed. And then in the tabernacle, the presence of God dwelled, and they made temporary sacrifices for sin. And then in the temple, the presence of God dwelled, and they made temporary sacrifices of sin. But then in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus came to earth to dwell to tabernacle among us, living the perfect life we could never live, and then making the once-for-all sacrifice for sin on the cross, and then rose exactly like he said he would. And on the day that he rose, John chapter 20, he told his disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. Now the presence of God is going to dwell in them. And then... 
he gave them the task of going and pronouncing that the final sacrifice for sin has been made at the cross. So we don't have a temple. We are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not know that you, it's plural you, so you can read it as y'all, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for we are the temple of the living God. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church of God in you, in all of us collectively, we are where the presence of God now dwells. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. As we go and proclaim and pronounce the forgiveness of sin. So, in light of that, what do we take from Haggai chapter 1? Well, if you're here with us today and you're not a believer, first of all, welcome. We're glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. My appeal to you is this. Being made in the divine image of God, the whole reason you exist is to live all of life in his presence and reflect his glory to the world around you by living under his good and gracious reign. But because of your sin, you've neglected to care at all and have busied yourself doing it your own way. Consider your ways. Stop frittering your life away on you. Turn to him in faith and repentance, crying out that you're done doing life your way apart from him. If that's you today, we'd love to talk to you more after the service. But if you're here today and you are a believer, this passage calls us to consider your ways in two main ways. First, consider your ways What are my priorities? Have you lost focus on living in the presence of God? Have all the myriad responsibilities and competing priorities of this life caused you to lose focus on his presence? Have you kept putting your relationship with him off thinking, I'll get to it, I just can't right now. I'll devote more time to that when when this season of work is over, when my kids are out of diapers, when things just slow down a little bit. It's important to me. It's most important, actually. I just don't have time for it right now. I think we should hear this text crying out. Is now a time for you to devote yourself to other things while you neglect my presence. 
just like their paneled houses stood as an indictment of their priorities. So stands all of our streaming, our devotion to career, our sports, our social media, all of our running about, spending times on other things, if the presence of God lies neglected. I've had this conversation so many times, and to be very, very clear, I've been on both ends of the conversation Someone says some version of, how is your time with the Lord going? Or how are you doing spiritually? And our reply is some kind of deflecting word, well, I'm just really busy right now. Or, you know, work's pretty crazy. Or, my kids. Church, what are we talking about? That's a red flag of misplaced priorities going up for all to see. If we're too busy for spending time with the Lord, we're too busy, and something needs to change now. I know busy work seasons. I work in a seasonal industry, and I've not always navigated that well. But we can't serve our jobs at the expense of neglecting Jesus. Sometimes you just have to go home And you know what? If that's not enough, then there's a few places hiring right now. Find another job. Don't gain the whole world and lose your soul. And then church, can we resolve, can we resolve to love one another enough that when we hear those kinds of red flags go up, we won't shrink back but will press in with loving pushback, pointing one another to Christ who deserves to be foremost in our affections. Can you do that for me when I dodge and deflect? Will you do that for your brothers and sisters when they dodge and deflect with questions like that? His presence should be his people's priority. But this passage doesn't just call us to consider how we're prioritizing his presence. It also calls us to consider how we're prioritizing his work. There was a task he had given them that lay neglected while they busied themselves with their own house. He's given us a task as well. Number one, he's given us the task to build up other believers. Ephesians 4, right? building up the church. Do you prioritize building up the church? Do you intentionally make time to encourage, spur on, comfort your fellow believers? Do you have time set aside for building the kind of relationships that mutually encourage and point people to Christ? When I sit down with my shepherding families, I always ask them, who is it that's helping you grow? And I ask, who are you helping grow? Is that important for you? Or is building his temple something you'll get to once all the other things are done? Second, he's given us the task to go with the gospel. Do you care? Do you care that God's stated mission is to use you to go with the gospel to those that don't know him? And he wants to use you 
not just with your family, with your kids. He wants to use you with others that don't know him. I think, I think we just do exegetical violence to the Great Commission if we try to reduce it down to just raising our kids in him. It's that, but it's so much more. Do you care that God wants to use you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in all the places that you go to go with the gospel? And church, do you care Church, do you care so much about seeing his gospel go forth that sometimes you can just forego that extra overtime, forego pushing for that extra sale, for leave that extra load of laundry undone, whatever it is, leave another house project for another time? Can you forego that, forego anything that causes you to drift from mission? Do you care that much about the task that he's given us? And beyond you care about seeing the gospel advanced in Midtown, in Boston, in Ghana, in Southeast Asia, in Papua New Guinea. What does it look like for you to prioritize the advancement of the gospel here at home and all around the globe? His mission should be our marching orders. Second, Consider your ways. What does repentance look like? For the Israelites, repentance had action associated with it. It looked like them getting to work rebuilding the temple. What does it look like for you to put into action tangible steps to prioritize the presence of God? If that's your need today, my encouragement for you is to make a plan with tangible steps towards seeking his presence and invite others to follow up with you about it. Put into, put into action some plan to seek his presence. What does it look like for you to put into action tangible steps to prioritize the mission of God? My, there, my encouragement to get started is always this. Settle in your heart that God wants to use you. No more excuses, no more putting it off, whatever. Settle in my heart, God wants to use me. Pray, asking God, what should you do first? Who should I seek an opportunity with? What should, where can I go with the gospel? Do that, and then rinse and repeat. Um close with this. As I studied this passage, uh, I, I discussed it with my wife, as I often do. Uh, poor, poor Leah has listened to most of my sermons two or three times by the time we arrive here on Sunday, so Christy might as well just hit her up to serve downstairs every time I preach. Um, but as we talk about it, she asked the question, she said, how do I, how do we stay focused on the kingdom and not drift towards where the day-to-day -day just takes over. The day-to-day -day stuff just takes over, right? We can discipline ourselves with some intentional steps on the front end. But discipline, though very important, only goes so far if delight doesn't take over at some point. 
Discipline is often the gateway to delight, but in the end, delight must come. Okay, I know like a lot of runners that love running. Some of you are like probably running in crazy heat this week. I don't understand it, but I know a lot of runners that love running. But I don't know many runners who loved their first few runs. But after pressing through in discipline, they learn to delay them lacing up their shoes and logging miles. And when they go a period of time without running, it's the discipline that gets them back involved in that that helps them to remember the delight. In the end, we do what we love. What comes out of us proceeds from the overflow of our hearts. And that's the hard thing about this passage. It asks us to consider what we actually love most. And it shows us that what we love most is shown in how we live. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way that it uh, speaks to all of our different states throughout life. God, I pray that as we wrestle and respond to your word now, we would wrestle and respond in a way that submits to your word, that lets your word come over us and peer into us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be active in all of us, uh, convicting us, pointing to us areas that may need to change. Father, I also pray that you would guard us from a legalism or putting on more of a burden than you intend for us to have. Lord, pray that we would have no other burden than just what the, the burden that the word, your word puts on us. So, God, I pray that you would stir us up to care more about your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would stir us up to care more about your mission. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.